Well, good morning. We are starting a brand new series today called Paint This Place. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about myself because it has a lot to do with what we are doing. Uh, in 2005, that's when I left uh, uh, really a career that I was in. I was a youth minister, had been a youth pastor uh, for 17 years I had done that. And in 2005, God had kind of moved me in another direction, um, the direction of what's called a church planter or a church starter. So I moved and I would go start churches, um, kind of start them from scratch. But before I did that, for about three years while I was a youth minister, those last three years or so, I was studying and I was researching and I studied um, to find what's the philosophy that we need to use, the strategy that we need to use. Um, I researched what traditional churches had been doing. I was looking at what new churches were attempting to do and what they were trying to do. And from all of that, I, I tried to put it together and come up with what I thought for me, what I felt led was the best method or strategy uh, combined with the way God had wired me personally, um, and all of that to come up with how I felt God was leading me on this journey to start churches. That's how I began my career as a church starter, which has landed me now as your pastor, one of them. And that was in 2005 that I left youth ministry and began starting churches. And then the summer of 2009, um, God in his redemptive providence placed me in a living room in, uh, in the Grand Prairie with a handful of folks who were believing that they were called to do something new, to do church in a different way. Perhaps it was maybe just a, a less complicated way. Um, trying to help people enter into a relationship with their creator through the path that Jesus made for us, but then to help them grow daily more and more and more like Jesus. And in doing so, they felt the need to get past some things that maybe get in the way of some people connecting with Jesus. Now, they, like me, had grown up in traditional churches. That's what I grew up in. Um, in a traditional church, you, you walk into what they call the sanctuary, and you often see uh, these giant benches like you see in a courtroom, um, and they call them pews. Um, and behind the pews then, as you looked forward, there would be a giant stage with a big giant lectern on it they called a pulpit. And behind the pulpit, you would see some rows and some other chairs, and that's where the choir would be. And you'd look on one side, and there's usually a piano. On the other side, there's an organ. And then you look around the people, and, and at least in my experience, I was always having to dress up in these uncomfortable things that we called Sunday clothes. <laughs> And these shoes, these shoes, they said they were leather, but I think they were concrete. To get your feet inside of them, they were horrible, and they were tight, and they were uncomfortable. And sometimes they even squeaked when you walked. It was horrible. Um, and I, so I, I was wearing, and then I had to wear them to this cold, sterile room 
they called a classroom. And I had to go to this thing called Sunday school. Now, I, I was on the weekend. I, I didn't want to be in school or in a classroom. But that's where my parents dropped me off in the Sunday school room. Now, listen. Please hear my heart. There is not one single thing wrong with pews and pianos and organs and pulpits and, and, um, and Sunday school and classrooms and dress clothes. There's nothing wrong with that. Not a single thing. But in some situations, those things... In my experience, from where I grew up and what I was involved in, sometimes those things became more important than the people around them. In some settings, the, the sanctuary and its reverence became more important than the people inside. And in some situations, the pews themselves became more sacred and they could not be updated or changed to better or more comfortable seating. They just couldn't be because that's what God expected were pews. And sometimes in some of the churches I was in, the piano on one side and the organ on the other and their placement and the treatment of those instruments, their existence in some cases became more holy and more important than the hurting people all around them. In some of my experience, the church calendar, which was crammed full of sacred, <laughs> in fact, it, the calendar itself became so sacred, it was kind of the equivalent or equal with, is a better term, equal with uh, Scripture. And if you were to miss a Sunday night or a Wednesday night or a, a weekly visitation night or a men's prayer breakfast or a women's uh, missionary meeting, if you were to miss that, it was so sacred that it was considered sin. And the more that the church added to the calendar, then the more that the committed Christian was obligated to attend and not miss. And if they did miss, then they obviously didn't love God enough. Now this next thing, it may not have ever been said with words, but it was certainly known and understood. That people were expected to clean up their lives before they stepped foot inside of the church. And if they didn't clean them up before, then they were certainly expected that morning to clean it up, the morning they chose to attend. And if they didn't clean it all up and fix it all up and confess it all up, then there was no place for them. Now, it may not have been said, but it was certainly felt and it was obvious, which led to other problems. Because then we had people every week who would have to pretend that they didn't struggle with sin. And a handful of them that weren't pretending well, they would then camouflage it by trying to point out other people's sins. You see, in much of our experience with this thing called church, 
we often see in, the, in, in America for sure a dramatic focus on many wrong things. So much that the church has become something it was never meant to become. It has become unchanging. It has become ineffective. It has actually become repulsive and mundane, antiquated. It has become lifeless buildings. And that was never meant to be. You see, today, when the average person thinks of a church, you know what they imagine? They imagine maybe a white building with a steeple. They imagine a building, a meeting space. Now, here we decided to go against the norm. We decided to not start Stuttgart Harvest Church inside of a church building. We actually decided to start inside of a movie theater where the church would actually gather and they would meet. And that's just maybe the most obvious thing that we change. There's much, much more. But let me propose something to you this morning. As many things as maybe we are trying to get right at Stuttgart Harvest Church, and as many things as we have changed about the way we do church, as many areas where we have made some progress, I propose to you this morning that there are still things for us that we are holding on to or are holding on to us, and they are holding us back. Now, if you've had a bad church experience that at some point in your life has caused you to reject church, or if, if some person or some church has hurt you in the past, and I, I just want to say this, you have picked a great series for you to take part in, and this is a great series even for you to invite someone to be with you. And here's why. Because of what we are going to discover in this series. Here it is. Most things that irritate you or that bother you about church should actually also irritate and bother the church itself. Many of the things that cause you to push back from church should also be things that the church is pushing back from as well. And we're going to talk about some of these things in this series. And for some of us, some of this might be a little upsetting, but that's okay because at Stuttgart Harvest Church, we're used to rocking the boat here. Think about this with me from an outsider's perspective. What even is the church? Now, from their perspective, if they were to define what the church is, it might be something like this. The church is a community of people or a group of people who follow the teachings of a man sent by God to explain God and to clear a path to God. Now, yes, we, we believe that he is so much more than a man. But from the outsider's perspective, that's... That's probably what they see. That's basically what they see as the church. And here's my question. What is there about that that they see? What is there to resist about that? I mean, not only have we committed to follow this guy, but this guy's primary command to us was this. He said, love God 
and he said, love the people around you. And he even took it as far as to say this, love your enemies. Now, now listen, what is, what is irritating about that? What is repulsive about that? In the ideal world, the only thing that an outsider should resist about this gathering of people is this, that they are loyal and they follow Jesus. That should be the only thing that is repulsive or that they would resist about the church. And you know what? In the first 300 years of the church, I mean, this is like after Jesus died on the cross and he rose again, and then he gathered his believers together and he launched this thing called the church. From that point, 300 years, that's exactly what happened. People who resisted the church only resisted because of this. The church basically said, listen, Caesar is not our king. Jesus is our king. And they resisted because of that. Because, you see, they already had a king. And so, you know, if a king is the king, and he hears people are saying, no, you're not my king, then there's going to be some tension there. And that's where the tension was. Christians were persecuted, not because they are weird, not because they had different weekend habits, not because they dressed differently, not because of any of that mess. At the end of the day, they were persecuted only because they were following Jesus. That's why. Think about this. How amazing would it be if the problem that an outsider had with Stuttgart Harvest Church was this, and this alone, that they adore and they follow Jesus. But you know what? I have never heard that. I have never heard someone say that that is the reason why they are repulsed by church because we follow Jesus. Now, I've never heard that, but I have heard a lot of other reasons, but never that. You see, the church should actually be irresistible. The church should actually be attractive and magnetic the only thing that should repel people is the fact that we choose to turn the care and the control of our lives over to jesus anything else that causes people to resist might be something that we the church should resist as well now think with me for a moment if you look at other parts of our world, not the United States, other parts of the world, where there are believers who are being persecuted, think with me for a moment, why are they being persecuted? It's not because of buildings, not because of the places in which they meet, not because of the fact that maybe they sing some funny songs, that's not it. It's not because they dress strange or they have weird holidays or because they've been picketing or boycotting. No, that's not why they're persecuted. They are persecuted because they follow Jesus. Now think about that some more with me. These people who are persecuted for following Jesus, when those 
people want to go to church so often, you know what they have to do? They have to walk for days in secret. And then when they get there, after days, then they can secretly meet with a church. And you know what they have to do? Many times they are risking their lives to simply gather together and study the scripture and to worship. And when they risk their lives, they're additionally risking the lives of their family. And when those believers hear stories of the United States churches, that there are three or four churches in every town, and that people will rarely walk down the street and go into a church to meet with the church. They look at us over here, and they ask this question, why? Why doesn't everyone, every chance they get, why doesn't everyone meet with the church? They ask, why doesn't everyone in America go to church? And they, they don't understand how some people can say that they're a Christian and then rarely go to church. They think this, who, who wouldn't want to gather with a group of people who, who are loving God and, and, and they're loving other people around them and they're learning to love their enemies? Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want to celebrate the fact that they're forgiven? Now, how strange. Think with me. Here in America, who doesn't want to be better? I mean, we see it on our Facebook pages all the time. We do. We want to be better. Who doesn't want to be better? And who doesn't want to live their lives better? Who? And that's an excellent question that these people are asking about us. Why doesn't everyone in the United States go to church? How did, here's another way to ask that question. How did the American church become so repulsive? And why is it that the, the, the reasons that people are giving for not wanting to be involved in church have absolutely nothing to do with the fact that we have chosen to submit our lives to Jesus as our ultimate authority. How has the church repulsed so many people today? Now we're going to discover, we're going to discover part of the answer to this as we go through this series. And here's what I believe that we're going to discover. The American church has become so repulsive, not because we have started doing new things. No, we, we have become repulsive possibly because we have added some very old ancient things back into what we're doing. Old things that were supposed to be left behind somehow got picked back up and we've been dragging it along with us. I think we'll discover that. Now, to help you understand what I'm talking about, let, let me describe to you religion. Religion, through most of history, if not all of history, even from the earliest days that you can find something about religion recorded in history, as far back as you can trace it. And I'm not just talking about like the Jewish people or the Hebrew people. Uh, we're talking about all religions. Any religion... As far back as you can find it, they all fit into one model. And Andy Stanley describes this model for us as the temple model. Now, 
that describes Jews and the temple which God actually started for them. So it does describe that, but it doesn't just describe that. This model also describes Islam. This model describes the earliest civilizations, back to like the Greeks and the Romans and the Persians, the Babylonians, everyone. This model fits Hindus and Buddhists. It even works for like if you go into the jungle and you find a tribal religion, it works for them as well. And it's called the temple model. And the temple model represents almost every religion and most religions even today. So let me explain it to you. The temple model, it has four parts. The first part is this. In the temple model, the religion has a sacred place, a sacred meeting place. The religion has, a, in the temple model, a sacred text that they refer to and that they follow. The temple model has holy men, and strangely, it's almost always men. They're the ones who can interpret and control and explain the sacred text. And they explain these to, the fourth part here, what's called the dedicated followers. And sometimes these followers are superstitious, sometimes they're frightened, but they listen to and they follow the holy men and what the holy men have said about the sacred text from the sacred place. And they, uh, and they hear this. If they don't live their life like this, as the holy man has described, then God's going to punish them. And that model, the temple model, is used today. If you go to the deepest parts of the Amazon, you can find a tribal witch doctor for that tribe. And he has around him a sacred place, and the people are afraid to go in. And there he has some sacred text or drawings or emblems, but only he can interpret those. And with that, he tells the people how to live and what to do. And the people are afraid to cross him, because this witch doctor has the power over life, and he has the power over death and curses and blessings. That's the temple model. But go to the other side of the world. Go to the Middle East. You can go to the Middle East and we have a sacred place with sacred text and holy men. And these holy men are interpreting the sacred text and they are telling the dedicated followers to do things that today we think are horrible and we think of as terrorism. But in their minds... They are being true to their holy men who are teaching from their sacred text in the sacred places. You see, the temple model is alive and active all around the world. But I believe what we're going to discover is this, that the temple model is actually alive and active inside the American church today. And at this, you might say, okay, okay, Harley, sacred places, sacred texts, controlled by holy men, interpreted by these holy men to dedicated followers, and you're looking around and you're saying, Harley, isn't that what we're doing here at Stuttgart Harvest Church right now? And I say, hang on, hang on, don't make the judgment too soon, but that's where we're headed. 
even though the temple model has trickled its way into the New Testament church, I believe it should not be that way. You see, with the arrival of Jesus came the end to the temple model. The end of that model for everyone. The end of that model, not just for everyone, really for every religion worldwide. The end of the temple model. So at the end of Jesus' ministry, he calls everybody together and then he sends them out. He actually sends them away from what they knew as their sacred place, their sacred city, their holy city. And Jesus told them, don't stay here. I want you to leave it. I want you to go away from it. And I want you to go away not to start new sacred places. That's not what you're doing. You're not setting up new temples, new sacred places. No, no, no. You're leaving it. You're leaving these sacred places behind. And here's what I want you to do. Tell them this message. Live this message that I'm telling you. Live that message around these people. This was the end of the temple model. And it was actually the start of something completely different. No more sacred places. None. Why? Why no more sacred places? Here's why. Because Jesus said, you are sacred. Now don't be confused by this. Think with me for a moment, the most sacred place you can think of. I don't know what it is for you. For me, I would think of it's the place maybe where Jesus was born. You know, in Bethlehem, that very spot, I I would think that is so sacred. I would think of that place where Jesus died on the cross. That would be enormously sacred, I would think, for me. That place where Jesus was buried in the tomb, where he rose again to life. I would see that as amazingly sacred. Don't be confused. If you were standing at that very place where Jesus walked out of the tomb or where he died on the cross or where he was born, if you were standing on what you feel is the most holy, sacred place on this planet, don't be confused. The person to your right and the person to your left, they are more sacred to God than that dirt you're standing on. Jesus said, No more sacred places. You are sacred. No more, no more holy people. No more special holy people, special high priest. No longer do you need someone to speak to God on your behalf. He said, this is completely different. Let me show you where Jesus kind of predicts that this is coming, this completely different thing. Matthew chapter 16, I'm going to start reading at verse 13. He's uh, walking with his disciples. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? 
And so they began to answer. Verse 14, well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then it gets serious here. Then Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Now, as often happened, Simon Peter, he speaks up first. Verse 17, 16, Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. So let me help you see how important this is. Jesus says to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Simon comes back with this answer that Jesus says God has revealed to him. And here's the answer. This is who we say that you are, Jesus. You are the Messiah, not just a Messiah, not just a set. You are the Messiah that all of the scripture has talked about and pointed towards. You are him, you are the Messiah, and not just a Messiah, you are the Son of God. You are God, Jesus. You're the Messiah, Son of God. That statement is then what launches Jesus into this next part. And here's what Jesus says in verse 18. So basically he said, Simon, who do you say that I am? And now he said, you're the Messiah, Son of God. Now Jesus says, okay, I'm going to tell you who you are. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter. Now, the Greek word for Peter is Petros. And that word literally means small rock or small stone or a piece of rock. He said, you are Peter, a small stone, a small rock, a piece of a rock or a little rock. Now, that little rock could be tiny, a pebble. It could be like this. It could even be a little rock like this. And you say, that's a huge rock. But Jesus is getting ready to compare this little rock to a huge rock. Here's what he says. And on this rock, and now he uses a different Greek word, the Greek word petra. This does not mean little rock or even a little rock. Here's what this means. This means a huge rock giant rock like Gibraltar. If you could think of this giant cliff that's made of rock, this precipice, giant, goes up hundreds and hundreds of feet, that rock, Jesus says. So he says, Peter, you are a little stone, a small rock. But upon this rock, this giant rock, now here's what he's saying. Peter, who do, I, who, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. He said, Peter, you're a small rock. But upon this giant, boulder, mountain of a rock, of a statement that you just made, upon this statement, this rock, this statement that you said, I am the Messiah, the Son of God. Upon this, I will build my, what does he say there? Church. 
And then he says, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Who do they say I am, Peter? Who do you say I am, Peter? He said, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Yes, you are a small stone, Peter, but upon this statement that you have made, this giant boulder of a statement that I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God, upon this I will build my church. That's an amazing, amazing scene where Jesus is launching. He's saying, something's coming. And I'm going to build it upon this statement that I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Upon this, I'm going to build this new thing that's coming. Now, the word here for church, the Greek word, is the word ekklesia. Ekklesia. Now, this word literally means a gathering of people. It means a congregation of people. It means an assembly of people. And Jesus, in this moment, is announcing this is something different, completely different, all new. It's not a new sacred place. No, we're not talking about, I'm going to build a new sacred place. No. It is a people, a group of people, an assembly of people, a gathering of people. That's what I'm going to build. Now, interesting, the very first English translation of the Bible, it was translated by a guy named William Tyndale. And when he got to this word, ecclesia, he translated it literally, just as you should. Translated, he translated it congregation. A group of people. A gathering of people. But there were people who thought they knew more and they were kind of in the uppity up and they knew better and they didn't like it translated like that. They wanted a different word. And because he used this word, he was gutsy enough to use this literal translation of this word in this verse right here. They burned him at the stake. But that's what the word means. But instead, they wanted a different word. They chose a German word, which means house of the Lord. And they used that instead. Jesus said, I'm going to, upon this giant rock of a statement, I will build a house of the Lord. They use the word, the German word, church. And the implications here are huge. The implications of this one word, this German word used in an English translation of the Bible, this word church, it being placed inside now means Instead of ecclesia, a gathering of people, it now means this, a building. Suddenly, ecclesia in the English translation and understanding of the Bible was no longer a gathering of people. Suddenly, it was a building, a specific place, a sacred place, instead of a movement of people. 
They took a German word instead of an English word and they placed it inside the English Bible, church. And that very well may be why today and, and the American churches, why we think of a church as a place, a building, a space, a sacred space. But Jesus said, no more sacred spaces. I'm going to build a movement of people and I will be with them wherever they go. So he said, no more sacred spaces. He also said, no more high holy men. No more high priest. Jesus opened the door for you and for me and for all of his creation to go directly to God. And that was for all mankind. This was going to be completely different than what had happened before. Different than the temple model. No more sacred places, no more high holy men. He also gave new meaning and understanding to this thing that they called the sacred text. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He said, don't, don't misunderstand me why I have come. I, I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with. These writings, these sacred texts, I didn't come to do away with them. He said, no, 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 understand this. this. This is amazing. He said, I came to accomplish their purpose. This is Jesus saying that the entire Old Testament, all of the laws, all of the prophets, all of the Old Testament actually points directly toward Jesus. It's as if, uh, Andy said, that it's as if these this Old Testament are guardrails. And they are guiding someone at the end of the guardrail, at the end of that road, that's Jesus. And these uh, this Old Testament is guiding you toward Jesus and what he did for us, the work on the cross. And once you get to Jesus, the guardrails aren't needed there anymore. They got you to Jesus. Jesus is saying, this is going to be different. I'm going to launch something new. I'm doing away with the temple model for everyone so I can start something new. For example, you know what else Jesus said about the sacred text? He said the entire law, the entire law, all of the commands, all of the commands in the Old Testament can be summarized with one single word. That word is love. He said love will replace you keeping the law. Love will replace the whole of the commandments. Jesus described it like this. If you are at the temple and you're offering a sacrifice to God and you realize that you have offended or hurt somebody, he said, I want you to get up, leave your sacrifice and go to that person and love them. Make things right with that person. God can wait. Jesus said, this is new. The temple model 
is now over. No more sacred places, no more high holy men to rule over you. The entire law, the sacred text are all reduced to this single verb, love. And we are going to apply that, Jesus said, to God, love God. To other people, love others. And even, yes, to your enemies, love your enemies. And Jesus got the church off to an amazing start. But then, dom, 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 dom. Some of the temple model got blended in and mixed in with the New Testament church. Some of the old ways got picked back up and brought into the church. And much of that temple thinking is still part of the church today. And most of that, most of that temple model thinking, that is what is so repulsive to the people on the outside today. But we're going to kind of figure this all out more through this series. We're going to do our best to paint this place, to paint this place, our lives with love. Regardless of your religious tradition, how you grew up, where you went to church, regardless of any of that, we're going to learn to paint our lives, this place, with love. Why? So that we can become irresistible again. And my friends, for that to happen, I'm going to encourage you, don't miss next week. Let's pray. God, we are learning to abandon the thought of the sacred place. Because you have said now there are no sacred places. It is our lives of those who are following you and submitted to you. That is where you dwell. Those lives have become your sacred place. And God, we're learning that a high holy person is no longer required to speak to you on our behalf because you, Jesus, died on the cross for us and you made a way for each of us to personally connect and communicate with you. God, help us to learn to paint this place, this gathering of people called Stuttgart Harvest Church, to paint this place with love. God, we need your wisdom. We need your guidance. We need your life-changing power to work inside of us this week so that we can return to gather as the church next week and discover how you want to paint this place with your love. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen.